Hello everyone, this is Ari in the Air, welcome back to the podcast. I know it has been a minute. I have been traveling, I was on the road for more than six months. I then just got back from Guatemala, I went to a paragliding competition there and raced my paraglider, which was super fun. And when I got back, I had a couple of emails, one from Germany. It was actually a PayPal donation. She sent me 50 bucks, which I really appreciate. If you didn't know, this podcast is ran entirely on donations. You can donate to me at paypal.me slash in the air. I really appreciate that. That's how this whole thing goes around. But she left a note and it said, I miss your podcast. I had a Another email from a Patreon supporter, Matt, and he says, I miss your words. So, these things are encouraging to me. If you've been listening to the podcast, I've talked about courage a number of times. Courage is a budgetary phenomenon inside of us. It's something that we build up. It's something we expend. And it's something that we can give to each other through a process that Rich Bartlett coined as encouragement. We give each co- we give each other courage through encouragement. And this is a really, really important thing to do. So today, I really just want to try to encourage you. I've needed encouragement in my own life, and I know how important that is. So today, I'm going to encourage you. We're going to Go on a long wander together here on some things I've been thinking about and some things that I've set intentions around. And I'm going to encourage you to set your own intentions and to ruminate on these things with me. So like always, we're going to listen to some nice music and we're going to get right into it. Welcome back. Thanks for listening. Here we go. Okay, so today I want to encourage you, and the things, the, the thread that I want to pull on here is essentially in relationship, principles of relationship, but also how they tie to my worldview. And essentially, I don't want to tell you how to be here, I just want to kind of tell you how I try to be, and maybe it is a framework that will encourage you to ruminate on similar concepts. And I also want to introduce certain concepts to you that have a radical power to make your relationships better. They have a radical power to make the world better. They have a radical power to explain why the world is fucked up and what it might look like for it to be more sane. So, mm. just want to tune in here so I'm not rambling too much. But this podcast has no outline. <laughs> I have nothing. I have nothing in front of me here, folks. I just have a microphone, and I'm in the new house that I've moved into here in Bend, Oregon. It's a beautiful place. It's a house that's nestled into the forest. It's very peaceful. It's very quiet. It's 
really big and I'm here by myself, which is all things that I'm adjusting to as there's so much less stimulation here and I'm kind of alone in a way that is really super healing for me, but also confronting for me right now. So it's from that place that I bring in this kind of stream of consciousness. So the stream of consciousness essentially derives from me setting intentions on how I'd like my intimate relationships to unfold in the near future, in the foreseeable future. And I want, just like anything, just as any good philosopher does, I want the things that I think about and set intentions for in my relationships to be able to scale to the way that I think I should treat other people, the world, myself. I don't want to make rules in my relationships that don't make sense in other relationships. Any good philosophy should be able to scale because philosophy helps us with principles. And if we can think from principles first, then we can kill a lot of birds with a lot less stones. So today I want to kind of introduce a couple of concepts that I try to implement in my interpersonal and intimate relationships that also reflect how I see the world. Okay. So, and and these things are going to be quite interconnected with each other and some of them synonymous and some of them overlapping and some of them just really good uh, ways to point at the same thing. And I think that the thing that we're pointing at here is the way, it is the goodness, it is the truth, it is love, it is connection, it is collaboration, co-creation, connection, these things, right? So the first concept that I want to talk about is the concept of anti-rivalry. And to begin, we'll talk about the opposite of that, which is rivalry, which is just how our world works right now. It is the system that we live in. The system that we live in right now is competitive. It is zero sum. It is win and lose. What that looks like in the marketplace is a tragedy of the commons. It is a multipolar trap. A multipolar trap is where, in essence, a multipolar trap can be described as if it is guaranteed that someone is going to be a dick, it might as well be me. If it's guaranteed that someone is going to cheat, it might as well be me. For example, if you are a fisherman and you're on the ocean and a whale in the ocean is worth nothing, but a dead whale on your boat is worth a million bucks, you're incentivized to pull that out. And even if you have a enlightenment moment where you see the whale and you look into its eye and you say, oh my God, I can't kill that whale. Well, you can see the lights of the next fishing boat behind you. And so you know that if you don't kill the whale, then the next guy will. And so the million bucks is going to go to somebody anyways. So you're almost forced to kill the whale. This is a multipolar trap. This is the race to the bottom, as some people have put it. This is an incentive structure that incentivizes agents in the marketplace to race to extract resources at an increasing pace. And there is a foundational setup here where essentially the incentive structure for it to be zero-sum, for it to be win-lose, is the problem. We have to forgive people for operating in the system that they have to operate. Right? Dude's got kids, he's got to feed them, needs to kill the whale. That's a tragedy, for sure. 
and we wish that he was more conscious about that, but at the end of the day, he can see the other lights of the fishing boat behind him and knows that if he doesn't kill the whale, then someone else will. This is a terrible situation, and this has been described as the race to the bottom. This has been described for hundreds of years as the tragedy of the commons. This is rivalry. This is competitive dynamics. In interpersonal relationships, this rivalrous dynamic looks like a power struggle. It looks like fighting. It looks like a victimhood dynamic where one person in the relationship will make the plea that they are the more victimized, the more oppressed, that someone is doing something wrong to them and they don't deserve it and yada yada. This is a zero-sum thing where guilt or blame is often the resource. And it is a multipolar trap because you know that someone is going to get the blame, so it might as well be not you and the other person. So this incentive skews the way that we show up in interpersonal relationships because we are essentially fighting. We're racing we're competing, and we are not co-creating. We're not collaborating. Okay, So anti-rivalry is different than non-rivalry, and I want to make that clear here. So rivalry being this competitive dynamic that I've just laid out, non-rivalry is some kind of postmodern concept that we're currently seeing all over the place that looks like equity, inclusion, diversity, which says that we need everyone to win. Everyone should win equally. But the concept of winning is still problematic here. It's still an incentive structure that skews our behavior and ideologies for the worse. And as much as equity, equality, inclusion, diversity may be important, they are still playing the same power game. And that is what I describe as non-rivalry. It is non-competitive. But if we go much further to anti-rivalry, which I've spoken in the past about how I don't like to talk about things as anti-anything. I think the concept of being anti-racist is kind of absurd and... Um, fighting for pieces like fucking for virginity. Um, there's these things that, like being anti is really not the thing you want to be. You want to be pro-beauty. Like Mother Teresa said, no, I won't go to your anti-war rally, but if you have a peace rally, I'll be there. And so I want to describe anti-rivalry from, uh, from this idea that anti-rivalry as a concept helps us understand it, but I also want to lay out the thing that I really want to point out, which is a pro-collaboration. Okay, so to begin, I'm just going to use this terminology here and keep going, even though I, it's, it's not my favorite, and I want to use it as a way to point to the pro thing that I'm looking at here. That's just a small tangent to preface this. So anti-rivalry is a system of incentives that we use to not only not compete, but to dismantle structures that have us compete in the first place. It is to essentially anti-rivalry in an interpersonal dynamic looks like we are working together to create wellness for both of us and for everyone all the time. It is a holistic way to look at things. It is a very nuanced way to look at things. It's a humble way to look at things. It doesn't assume that we know the answers. It is essentially dialectic, which is another concept that I'm going to talk about here in just a second. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. I want to 
stay here with this anti-rivalry bit. So, anti-rivalry in a interpersonal relationship, how you might implement this in, a, in your intimate relationship right now, would be that especially when you're in conflict or in setting intentions, you would be very aware of the part of you that is competitive. You would be very aware of the part of your partner that's competitive. The systems and structures and habits that we've built for so long that have us live in a zero-sum, win-lose dynamic. Then we would look to nullify them, neutralize them. And instead, we would start looking towards the ways in which we can structure our communication so that it benefits all people everywhere. And I know this is, God, that sounds so esoteric when I say it. That sounds so woo-woo and so far-fetched. And from where we currently are, it is. I admit that, yes. The things that I'm talking about here are not like some small deviation from where we currently are. This is pretty foundational and I almost would say radical in its conception. So I grant you that. And I think that as a, if you want to argue pragmatism here that it will never work it's just like that argument is pretty lost on me i think that if you're listening to this podcast i think that you're likely sensitive to the idea that things could be better and should be and to make them better uh oversimplified anything won't work and we need nuance and we need collaboration and we need new ways to communicate and i think that these are some of the concepts that I want to be encouraging you with today. So, anti-rivalry is a really important one. The next thing that really like almost parallels anti-rivalry is good faith, bad faith. And this is a way of communicating and I really, this is something that kind of changed my life in a pretty profound way. So, if you're familiar with debate, there is a term in debate that is referred to as straw man. When you're debating someone and you hear their argument, a straw man is when you hear their argument, but instead of really working to hear their argument, what you do is you take your own assumptions, biases, and what you heard and you stuff straw into jeans and a flannel and put a hat on it and then you fight that thing. <laughs> you take their argument, you make a fake argument out of it and then you battle that argument. Well, a straw man is typically a misunderstanding that then goes into debate. And this happens so often. If you've ever... Um, if you've ever had any kind of heated debate, heated discussion, the importance of defining your terms, the importance of defining the intention is so, so critical. And when you don't do that, straw manning tends to result. The opposite of a straw man, we refer to as a steel man. Okay? So the straw man is this, you take what someone says, you skew it, and then you... Assume that that's exactly what they said. Okay. This is something that I refer to as bad faith communication. Because A, you're not putting in the emotional labor that you need to to understand what they're actually saying. You're not putting in the, you're not giving them the benefit of the doubt that what they're saying is worthy enough for you to give the emotional labor so that you can actually understand it. And you jump to destroying it, to defending against it, to saying why it's stupid and why it's wrong before you actually do the 
laborious task of understanding it. Okay, this is bad faith. This is straw man. This happens so often in our interpersonal relationships. So often we get triggered, we get upset, and our benefit of the doubt for our partner goes out the window. We assume we're being attacked. We assume we need to protect ourselves. This all stems from a foundational lack of safety that we feel like we're unsafe. This stems from our childhood. This stems from our environment. And the reality is that we have grown up in a very unsafe world. And that's something I have so much sympathy for. So many of us had parents that wanted us to achieve instead of being unconditionally loved. There were so many ways in which our parental love was conditional. There's so many ways in which our competitive society basically says you have to earn money or you will die, you will be homeless, you will be, you will starve. There are so many ways where that's like actually true, right? Like if you don't pay your rent, if you don't pay your bills, if you don't, if you can't buy the groceries at the grocery store, it's like there's so many ways where like the treadmill, the rat race, this thing is like objectively true and manifests in a deep sense of psychological unsafety that is collective, that is rampant and widespread in so many of us in our, in our deep in our subconscious, right? So the fact that we have this deep-seated unsafety that manifests as defensiveness, that, uh, that manifests as a feeling that we're being attacked by our partners, that our love is conditional, that we need to fight and claw for our value, for our worth, to defend our identities. All of these things I'm very sympathetic for, and it's a, something that we need to understand when we start to tackle the idea of, okay, what is the better paradigm? What is the next step in human evolution and communication and interpersonal and intimate relationships? Which, wow, what a beautiful thing to ruminate on, right? What a beautiful thing to be on the tip of the spear of. Okay, so having bad faith, having a straw man argument is, is a bad thing. It only perpetuates that sense of unsafety because it comes from that place of unsafety that you need to defend yourself. But if we can center ourselves long enough, if we can soothe ourselves, if we can convince ourselves that we're actually safe in our relationships, in the communication, in the conversation that we're in right now, we can allow ourselves to do the emotional labor for our partner in conversation, whether that's our intimate partner, whether that's our business partner, whether that's our friend. We can do the emotional labor of working to understand what they're actually saying, where it comes from, and why. This is a steel man. Steel manning is where you take what someone says, you do the emotional labor to understand it, and not only that, you then assume that it's the strongest version of what they're possibly saying. You have good faith. You give them the benefit of the doubt. You help make the argument stronger. You assume that it's the best possible version of the argument, and then, and only then, do you move forward in the conversation, whether to rebut it, whether to critique it, whether to build it up, uh, to accept it or not, right? This is good faith communication. This is steel man. And this can literally change your relationships because to be able to steel man means that you have to center yourself in a place of safety. It means that you have to become you have to come into a space where you can respond instead of react. A straw man is a reaction, and a steel man is a response. Straw man is a reaction. It is emotional first. It is. We hear something. Usually it triggers us in some way, conscious or unconscious, and we react. It comes from an unconscious place. A steel man is a very deliberate thing. It's intentional. It is loving. It's accepting. Oh, it's just so much infinitely better. I also want to tie into this a concept that is one of the most foundational things in my life that 
is ties together my worldview, which is nonviolence. The idea of nonviolence. Marshall Rosenberg wrote a book some likely 30 years ago, is my guess. Maybe more. Maybe it was the 70s that he wrote it, which is 50 years ago. Isn't that crazy? The 70s was 50 years ago. Marshall Rosenberg wrote a book called Nonviolent Communication. Nonviolent Communication. So, violent communication is anything that is intended to hurt. It is intended to demean, to dismiss. And nonviolent communication is a structure of communication that helps us de-escalate in ourselves, essentially. It is not a set of rules that you put on another person. Nonviolent communication is a framework that helps you understand how you ought listen and how you ought speak. It is not a rule that you put on other people. It is an expectation of how you're going to be yourself, which is so beautiful. That's the only way you can change the world is from inside out. So Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication, I think, is required reading for everyone. And I have it here right in front of me. It's a beautiful, um, very integrated thing. It's such an amazing resource. I highly recommend it. Um, How nonviolent communication ties into good faith, bad faith, steel man, straw man, essentially is that a straw man is violent communication. A straw man is you are not listening. You are not trying to understand. You are making evaluations and not observations. There are all these ways where if we could take the feeling that we're being attacked out of it, we would never have a attacking sentence come out of us, right? I think it's important to recognize that our feeling of unsafety is what creates the attack back out of us. And I guess one of the most encouraging things I can tell you is to curate this sense of safety that you have in yourself, and it has been such an incredibly long road for me. I grew up in a world where even my familial structure was competitive. My, I'm in the middle of three boys, and I fist fought my brothers every single day. I would go to school, and I would either be bullied or bully. I was suspended a number of times for fighting. I have scars on myself from fighting. I have been knocked out, and I have knocked people out. I have fought to defend my pride, my honor, my friends, all this shit. It's just ad nauseum. The life that I led that was violent and in bad faith and ugh. And at this point in my healing journey, I find myself quite allergic to those things. And I find myself very keenly, astutely aware of them. If someone is holding me in bad faith, I become aware of that quite quickly. And vice versa, if I find myself holding someone in bad faith, that's something that I can often be aware of, even in its inception. It's also made me very allergic to news media and mass entertainment because these things are essentially, as Schmachtenberger says, vicarious trauma. These are things where we essentially get Stockholm Syndrome, we get addicted to the people who yell the loudest at us, and we just have this fight-or-flight response that we get addicted to. As you know, I'm a professional action sports athlete, and having some kind of adrenal response, some fight-or-flight response, is something that I certainly have been addicted to and have tried to clean up, although I haven't wanted to entirely stop doing these sports, but I want to do them for the right reasons, and I want to 
doom in a way that feeds me holistically and not just gives me a dopamine and adrenal response that I become addicted to. So. I guess to put some rubber on the road here, what this looks like in your intimate relationship, I'm sure that the chance that you're listening to this podcast and you haven't had a partner that you had a fight with is pretty much zero, right? Like, I think we've all had a partner who we fought with. Maybe that was our parents. Maybe that was our lover. Maybe that was our friend. But I think we've all been in some kind of argument that we were held in bad faith, that we didn't feel heard, that we didn't feel safe, that that feeling of unsafety manifested in us saying things that we didn't really deep down mean. And our, the person we're dealing with had a feeling of unsafety that had them say and do things that they didn't mean, that weren't supportive of your well-being, that were rivalrous, that were competitive, that were trying to win the guilt and the blame and the shame and the victim status. Oh, it's so tragic. It's so tragic. So I think that hmm, I'm going to avoid giving you some kind of, I'm going to avoid the, the technical steps here. Like I said, I want to encourage you by showing you some of the intentions that I've set in my relationships, hoping that you might ruminate on similar things in your life and your relationships. How that looks in my relationships is I can't really give you the technical things, but I can tell you how it feels. And to be held in good faith, um, the relationship that I, that there's two relationships that come to mind that I have in my life that are 99% of the time in good faith and in both directions. They are with my best friend, Daniel, who lives two houses down from me. He is so incredibly centered and very not, sensitive. He's very like, he's just centered. Uh, he's not super sensitive. I'm a very sensitive person. He's not. And with Daniel, I can basically at any time that something happens in our conversation that I don't like, that I don't feel held in good faith, I can stop. I can say it. We can address it. It's not something that he reacts to. It's something that he will face. It's something that he will apologize to. He's willing to hear how I feel and why I feel that way and all these things. And he wants the best for me. So he wants to shape our relationship in a way that really supports me. And this is something that just it feeds me. The other relationship that I have is with my best friend, Annie, Dr. Annie Pendigraf, who's been on this podcast. She's a clinical psychologist. And I think that she's the most centered person I've ever freaking met. Not that she's not totally bonkers and the coolest, funnest, wildest, funkiest, spunkiest babe out there, but she can hear anything I have to say without it being about her, which is such a beautiful freaking thing. God, it's so awesome. And I'm not sure if she got this from her clinical training or her clinical practice or just by being a psychologist for so long, but she can hear what I think and fear and doubt. She can hear it all and be so dissociated from it that she is never triggered by what I say. And if she's triggered by it, if she's pissed off by it, she can speak right to that thing that she's triggered, that she's pissed off and that it doesn't come back at me as bad faith, as attack. She has a deep sense of safety in herself. These things, these relationships are some of the foundations I have for my psychological well-being. And they were things that I was so painfully lacking when I was on this six-month road trip, and I'm so glad to be back in the loving care of these relationships here in Oregon. So, mm. 
yeah, just the just thinking about how those relationships feel, I want to encourage you. I swear to God they're possible. I swear they're possible. You can have friends that really super support you and that really want to hear what you're actually saying. And they don't just assume that they know what you're saying. And they don't just give you unsolicited advice. And they don't just try to fix you. Mm. There is a way, there is a higher way here. I don't claim to know it. I don't claim to think that you're going to do it just like I am. I don't think that your intentions are going to be my intentions in a relationship. And, and that's what I've been saying here, is that I hope that by sharing with you the intentions that I have in a relationship, the things that I really value in my friendships and my intimate partnerships, that I can encourage you to ruminate on similar things. What is it about your relationships that are important? What is it that you want to feel in these relationships? How do you want to be held? What is the function of these things? And what are the mechanics that might go into it? And some of these concepts of good faith, bad faith, nonviolent communication, anti-rivalry might be some good starting points to think about. Is my relationship rivalrous? Are we competing for something? And if so, what are we competing for here? Is it pride? Is it clout? Are we defending ourselves? Are we attacking each other? Are we competing for victim status? Are we competing for blame? Are we trying to blame each other? Is it a power struggle? Do I feel heard? Do I feel safe? Do I want to feel safe? What would make me feel safe? These are huge questions. I guess to zoom out a bit here, I started by describing this rivalrous dynamic, this multipolar trap, where the whaler has to kill the whale. He's trapped in his incentive structure of the world to kill the whale. Well, whoa, and yeah. To zoom out and to look at that from an interpersonal geopolitical dynamic, we essentially have this world that is manifested that we're constantly competing for political blame. If you just imagine the American political system where we have this left versus right thing, we're basically just competing for blame. No, it was the right's fault. No, it's the left's fault. No, the right is right and the left is wrong. You know, this like, it's about being right. It's about being wrong. It's about pride. It's about blame. It's about victim status. It is so incredibly toxic and so incredibly unhealthy and it's so rivalrous. It is not competitive. It is not supportive of everyone. It is a zero-sum, win-lose game. And it is a fractal that you can zoom into, into yourself interior, and you can say, okay, there's a part of me that wants to strong-arm myself to make me do more to feel better about myself to to numb myself or to avoid things or to feel like I have pride or what do I need to do to achieve so I'm loved or accepted all these different things and then if you zoom all the way out on a geopolitical sphere it's like the same freaking thing it's the same thing we're trying to blame each other we're trying to compete with each other we're trying to you know it's America versus China it's we're stuck in this. We're trapped in this. This is, this is what, um, this is what is inexorably self-terminating. This is what, when we talk about civilization careening off of the edge of existence, that sound is my nine-year-old Great Dane flapping her ears, waking up from a sunbathing nap. Maybe about to bite me or bark at me. Um, this is the rails that civilization can come off. This is the self-terminating thing. This is the, 
This is the competition that leads us to extract all the resources, take up all the oil, heat up the atmosphere. Global warming is out of control, but we can't actually stop anything because we're stuck in this competitive dynamic where we still, to feed families, we still have to play this competitive game. And for me, I don't want to try to vote to change it. I really just want to start by changing my interpersonal relationships. I want to change the relationship I have with myself, with my closest three friends and my intimate partner. I want to start there. I want to start by changing how I treat people and how they feel to interact with me. And that's everyone. I literally mean that like at the grocery store with people I pass. Like I'm on the airplane coming back from Guatemala and I just like, man, if you pay attention, there's so much shit that you can do to help out. Like literally there's so many old ladies who need their luggage lifted into the overhead bin. If you're just paying attention, you can just see the need for it. But I think that if we're imagining utopias here, which is an important thing to do, I think, setting intentions, aiming really high for ourselves and for each other, our relationships and humanity, because it literally is a beautiful thing to recognize that we are the tip of the spear. We are the alive specimens right now. Our decisions have impact on how the next generation lives, how the current generation lives, how we treat each other, how we feel. We have power and agency around that right now. We are the tip of the spear. We have to accept that and acknowledge that. And then we have to encourage each other, right? Because it takes so much courage to face the shit. It takes so much courage to face our own healing. It takes so much courage to face our own wounds. And so the next thing that I want to talk about here that's so important is something that I read in a Richard Feynman book. Richard Feynman is a, was, I think he's dead now. He was a theoretical physicist. He was on the Manhattan Project and was forced to create an atomic bomb. And um, Very smart, very funny, very clever person, great writer. Highly recommend reading his books. One of the things that he wrote in his books, in his book was, as he was being forced to do this Manhattan Project, he realized that it wasn't his fault how the world was. And at large, it's essentially that the way the world is is not your fault. And we can look at this from a number of altitudes. To begin, we can say that the global political climate, the fact that we have nation states that compete against one another, is not your fault. That is not your fault. And that might just bounce off your forehead like, duh, yeah, of course it's not my fault. But if we zoom in a bit, we might be able to start seeing how we internalize the way things are as our fault. And typically the clearest indication we have of that is shame. So if we zoom in all the way, we basically understand that our traumas and our triggers and the way that we react negatively is our fault. And we have shame for that. For me personally, I could say one thing that comes up in me is competitiveness. It is that there are other men, say, that might be better than me at any given sport. Or we could even, an um, even more tender spot in me is sexual competition. That is to say, other men vying for my partner. Very tender spot in me. And that brings up a lot of insecurity and competitiveness. And when that comes up, I don't want that to come up. And when it comes up, I have shame around it. But the shame comes from this misidentification that that is 
that has anything to do with me. Because the reality is that that is a response that my psyche has come up with in order to deal with the environment that I've been given, that I've grown up in. That's to say that that is a response to the parenting that I had, which wasn't my fault. That is a response to the school system that I was in, which wasn't my fault. That had to do with my environment, which wasn't my fault. That is merely a response that my psyche has come up with. The way the world is, is not your fault. And the way that you are, those negative aspects about you, they're not your fault either. This is a beautiful relief because as these things come up over and over and over, because if we're going to deal with them, man, they're just going to come up over and over and over again. This competitive, this competitiveness, this insecurity, this defensiveness, these things come up over and over and over. And if they come up and their coming up brings shame about us, then we'll defend them. Because as A.J. Bond says, what you shame stays the same. So we have to begin by divorcing the idea that the way the world is is our fault and that the way we are is our fault. And this is a beautiful relief because we still have agency over our behavior But the fact that that trigger came up, the fact that that piece of my psyche and personality exists is not my fault, helps me feel lighter about the entire situation and encourages me to be able to face it. It's not so heavy. It's not so dark. It's not so crazy. It's not something I have to run away from. On the other side, the things that you're so good at and your achievements might not be your fault either. There's this roller coaster that we're on where we have this pride that goes up and the shame that goes down. And maybe we're better off if we can just get off the roller coaster altogether. I want that. Because my intentions for how I want to be as a partner or that I'm centered. And that when I hear my partner's complaints, even directly about me, that they're actually not categorically about me and my personality. Because the way that I am is actually not even my fault. And I can more readily face the things. I have more courage. Hmm. I love this podcast. This is such a space for me to ruminate. I've been talking to you for almost 50 minutes now, and I think that's about enough. But I hope that you'll consider these things, these concepts of non-rivalry or uh, anti-rivalry, non-violent communication, good faith. These are things that feel so good when you get them. When you get in these relationships that are in good faith, God, it feels so good. I want that for you. These are some of the intentions I have, and maybe they're intentions that you share as well. And I hope that this is somehow helpful for you. I really appreciate you listening. Consider donating, because that's one way that I get so much encouragement is people send me some money and they say, thank you for doing what I'm doing. And it so encourages me. That's why I'm back here. Okay. And I'm looking forward to more of this. We have season two of the whole Airy in the Air podcast coming up with Peter Lindbergh and Daniel Schmachtenberger and John Verveke and Greg Enriquez and all these amazing people that we've had on this show. And we're going to just go deep into the, the world ourselves and everything. I hope you'll join us. Thanks so much for being here. Love you. See you soon.
Thank <laughs> you. 